0: We know you have lots of questions.
1: If you think that you've developed symptoms.
0: Should I avoid large public gatherings? Whether schools should be closed.
2: Welcome to Common Sense. Here we address your questions about COVID-19 with interviews featuring experts in medicine and leaders in community, public, and global health. Here's your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell.
1: Welcome to the podcast, COVID-19, Common Sense Conversations on the Coronavirus Pandemic. I'm your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. My guest today is Dr. Tim Harita, whom you'll recognize if you've been a longtime listener of this podcast because he's been a guest several times. I asked him to come back again because he always does a great job of explaining complex topics in a way that makes a lot of sense. He recently posted on Facebook about a few important topics that I thought we should cover here as a way to update our listeners about what's going on with COVID-19. The main topics I'd like to cover today are the state of vaccine development and the CDC's new data about mortality. Dr. Harita is a board-certified family physician and is a talented medical educator as well, and he's been published in multiple venues. He graduated with honors from Dartmouth Medical School and currently practices with the Southern California Permanente Medical Group and is an assistant clinical professor at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. Tim, thank you for generously agreeing to be my guest again on the podcast. Hey, Ted, thanks for having me back. Absolutely. It's always really uh, great information that you provide. So let's jump right into it. What are the latest developments, Tim, regarding the COVID-19 vaccination program? As
0: of today, there are more than 140 different vaccines in development. Uh, They're being studied for two things, safety and efficacy. Efficacy means whether or not they actually work. There's two vaccines leading the way as of right now. There's the Moderna mRNA-1273 and the Pfizer BioNTech BNT-162 vaccines. These two are entering entering the uh, final phase three trials this month. Pfizer this past week announced a $20 price per vaccine making this race even more competitive. Other companies such as Johnson & Johnson, AstraZeneca, and Novavax have billions of dollars invested in making more traditional vaccines. These are in the earlier phases of testing and development. Some are emphasizing not just antibody protection, but also T-cell protection, which has up to now been overlooked.
1: Can you tell us a little bit more about that, Tim, um, and how some of the new vaccines are different than those that we've traditionally used so far?
0: Sure. A... uh, Brand new vaccine technology was studied during the two previous coronavirus outbreaks. There was SARS in 2002 and MERS in 2012. They utilize a new mRNA approach, which uh, may be a game changer in vaccine technology. mRNA stands for messenger ribonucleic acid, which is a counterpart to DNA, which I'm sure many listeners have heard of before. Think of DNA as a library. An RNA is a copy of a single book, or one chapter, one page, one paragraph, or one sentence, messenger RNA is a special type of copy that works as a blueprint to directly manufacture proteins in our cells. By delivering mRNA in a vaccine, our cells start to produce viral proteins instead of the virus itself. This turns each person into a vaccine-producing factory allowing our immune systems to recognize and prepare for fighting the coronavirus. If it works, there's gonna be a lot of advantages over current vaccines. First, uh, they can cause a two to three times stronger antibody reaction compared to someone who's had the infection. The code for the vaccine can be digitally shared versus the old analog method of needing the actual virus in the laboratory. You can quickly and easily edit and change the vaccine on a computer, allowing us to adapt to new viruses in the future or any changes in the current virus. This is much faster and reliable than traditional vaccines. To give you an example, what we're using now for the flu vaccine, they're made in chicken eggs. It takes about one egg per vaccine. The virus then needs to be removed and altered, then put into a vaccine, then distributed. This has led in the past to uh, flu vaccine shortages. So instead of several months, this new vaccine can be made in as little as one week.
1: Amazing. This is why I keep asking you to come back on the show, Tim, because you explain things so well, really complex topics like vaccine development and, and break that down. And I love the analogy of uh, DNA being the library and and mRNA being A book or a chapter, some small part. Um, So, thank you. And you know, as you talk about these two companies, Moderna and and Pfizer, that are leading the way, you can really look at the business section of the newspaper and and follow where the money's going, and and kind of have an idea of who seems to be leading the race. I just saw a headline that Moderna was got a four hundred twenty-seven million dollar grant, and I think Pfizer got a big contract with the federal government. Clearly, they're trying to, to boost that development and help these companies. Get these things out into the marketplace. So tell us, Tim, how long do vaccines usually take to develop? And when can we realistically expect to see the first COVID 19 vaccines? Because that's the question that keeps coming up with my patients and, and friends for that matter is, is when is this actually going to be a reality? Absolutely.
0: Before a vaccine is even
1: tested on humans,
0: there's what's called preclinical development. This lasts about two to four years. Then there are the human testing phases, one through three, uh, that can be an additional two or three years. So in total, a new vaccine takes a minimum of five to seven years, often more than a decade, which is time we don't have with this virus. With the two new vaccines provided things go according to plan, we may see initial distribution as early as this fall, and widespread use with up to a billion doses per year may happen by the middle of next year.
1: That's amazing to think about that uh, being able to turn out a billion doses of a vaccine in, you know, under 12 months or around 12 months from this time period when it normally takes 5 to 10 years for a vaccine to be developed.
0: Yeah, and there's only a third of that in all of America. So, yeah. that's a lot of that's a lot of vaccine in a very quick way.
1: Absolutely. So, Tim, I want to switch gears here a little bit off of vaccines, um, and maybe in a future um, chat, we can talk more about it as as the vaccine development continues. But but shifting gears, I want to talk a little bit about the CDC and some of the data um, that they've been releasing. And there's been some controversy, too, with the, the White House asking for hospital data going directly there to the DHS rather than CDC. But the CDC recently released new data concerning mortality. Can you explain uh, to us what they actually had to say?
0: Yeah. So the, the early estimated mortality, COVID-19, was as high as 3 to 4%. The current best estimation of the infection fatality rate is down to 0.65%. The CDC is now using what's called the infection fatality rate instead of the old case fatality rate, which we think gives us a more accurate picture and, in this case, a significantly lower number.
1: So, Tim, what is the difference between case fatality rate and the newer infection fatality rate? And is this an important distinction?
0: The old case fatality rate is the proportion of deaths among those with confirmed cases. The word confirmed cases is important here, and this is what's key. When we started to get testing approval, you needed to have very specific symptoms. You need to have a fever, cough, and shortness of breath In addition to that, you needed to have uh, an age 65 or older or with specific comorbidities. Those of us on the front line, uh, we knew at the time we weren't testing all of the patients who likely had COVID 19. And this was due to limited testing capabilities, limited knowledge of the various COVID symptoms, and the fact that there weren't any treatment options available. So the newer infection fatality ratio includes all of those infected present. And past, including those with milder symptoms and those who are asymptomatic. So today, many symptom, uh, many cities, sorry, anyone who wants to can get tested for active infection or antibody evidence of prior infection. So the distinction is very important. Patients dying of COVID are now thought to be only a small fraction of those who get it and recover. Today we think there's a uh, greater than ninety nine point three percent survival rate, especially if you're less than sixty five years old and otherwise healthy.
1: Right, and this is really uh, important to kind of understand this because you know you see this becoming a, a political issue and and people pointing fingers and saying, "Well, science doesn't know what's going on," and yeah, and really, it's a it's a brand new virus that we are actively learning about and trying to figure out. And initially, as you said, there wasn't enough testing available, which gave us that case fatality rate of 3 to 4%. And now that cities, like you mentioned, they're going back and antibody testing people and, and finding out that very significant swaths of communities, particularly in cities like New York, actually have antibodies and probably were infected. And, and so, if you count, you put them in the denominator... Fewer people are actually dying when you realize how many more were actually infected. And that's why that number's been shifted down into that 0.7% range. Is, is that a fair summary?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And I agree this has probably been one of the most politicized diseases that I've ever heard of. You know, it's a virus, doesn't care about our politics.
1: That's actually, yes. I had another guest on the show who who said something very similar. We can we can think whatever we want. Yeah. Act however we want and point fingers, and at the end of the day, this virus doesn't care. It's going to do what it what it does, and, and, and that's what we really I think need to be focused on. And you know that's the purpose of this show too, is to really provide evidence based, credible information without putting um, much in the way of politics into it. You know, occasionally we dabble a touch, but without trying to point fingers. Yeah. So, um, Tim, um, why is the mortality rate lower?
0: So before the CDC published this new estimate, we saw something surprising. Uh, We're seeing the second wave of cases skyrocketing, you know, up 70,000 cases per day. The number of deaths wasn't increasing at the same rate. It was actually decreasing proportionally to about 75% of what we saw in April. Some of us uh, thought that this was due to what's called lag time, uh, the two weeks or so that it takes for cases to worsen and cause death. This still may be true, but the spike in cases was over a month ago already. There's a handful of explanations uh, for why the mortality rate might fall. I'm going to focus on what's established already, but there's a lot of speculation in the scientific community uh, about several reasons. Uh, But one area of interest is what's called cellular immunity. Uh, We've been emphasizing antibodies up until now, how long they last, who gets them, when they get them, uh, how robust the antibody response is but this leaves out the entire other half of our immune system. We do know the role of T-cell immunity is very important in uh, fighting viruses. And this immunity can last decades longer than antibody levels. But here's what we do know about why the mortality rates are so much lower. First, we're identifying more cases. More people are getting tested than ever before. And the more people are being identified with COVID-19, more data gives us more accurate pictures of what's actually happening. The antibody tests are a big factor, catching those who who are mild or asymptomatic, uh, which some estimates about 10 times higher than what we are recording. Today, we have much uh, better treatment options available. Certainly, nothing's perfect, uh, but we have much more than we did back in April. Hospital mortality is uh, also improved. And lastly, more of our younger people are getting infected for a variety of reasons, and young people are much more likely to survive. With almost half not having any symptoms at all. So this is all pretty good news with uh, cautious optimism about vaccines coming our way and a much better survival rate. I think any good news right now gives us some hope that we're going to get through this together.
1: Absolutely. So, So just kind of diving into what you just said. So there's really a couple of things going on. One is statistically, we're looking at this differently because there are more cases in the denominator, and that's bringing the overall infection fatality rate Lower, which is giving us actually, uh, it's not playing with numbers. It's actually a better estimate of how many people are dying, and and that's one part of the reason. And then the other part of the reason is younger people getting and uh, being identified as being infected, uh, and yeah. they don't die at the same rate as um, older individuals do. And in the hospitals uh, and even outside the hospitals, treatments are getting better. We're we're realizing that. It's better to keep people off of ventilators who have COVID infection because even though ventilators do really well for things like bad pneumonias and a condition called ARDS, they, people with COVID don't do very well on ventilators. We're identifying that that a lot of people with COVID get blood clots, especially when they're in the hospital and they're being given uh, blood thinners or anticoagulation, and that may be improving outcomes. There's medications that are being tried like Remdesivir and and other ones that we've talked about on the show before. So there's really kind of two lanes. One is, you know, a better estimate of the actual data and then a, a more knowledgeable approach to actually providing care. Is that fair?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. You know, young people couldn't get tested when this started. If you were young and healthy and we knew you had COVID, there weren't any treatments, you were unlikely to be hospitalized. You were pretty much sent home with quarantine instructions. Um, and close follow-up, but um, now we're capturing a lot of that population, and the outcomes for younger people are much, much different than for older people.
1: Right, and that's not, you know, we don't, I want to make sure that we're not minimizing this either. There are, yeah, um, you know, children who are getting that inflammatory condition called MISC. Yeah. There are young people who still die of this, uh, but it is, it's a different it affects older individuals much more significantly than it does younger individuals. But at the same time, we need to make sure that we don't let our guard down because younger people do die and and they do have long-term sequelae of this illness of of this viral infection as well. Absolutely. So Tim, um, as always, uh, I want to thank you for sharing your expertise and your insights and and taking time uh, out of your day to um, have this discussion I want to timestamp our discussion because things are always changing so rapidly. Today is uh, July 24th, 2020, and we'll release this interview in just a couple of days. But um, anytime we're talking about new developments and what's going on, I think it's important that that everybody knows when the recording actually happened. It's changing quickly. Yes. Um, so, Tim, thank you on on behalf of the podcast and our listeners for coming back and giving us some updates.
0: Thanks again for having me back, Ted.
1: Absolutely.
2: That's it for today. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. If you have questions about COVID-19 that you'd like discussed on the podcast, send an email to info at arslanga.media. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Be vigilant, but remain calm. Ars longa, vita brevis.